This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to Under One Blue Roof, your podcast exploring the problem of climate-driven homelessness. Here, we ponder some of the big questions about housing, social justice, planetary boundaries and more, and listen to stories from experts in the field who explain just how it's all related. Let's get to know the human face of climate change. And thanks for joining us under One Blue Roof. I'm your host, Marushka Soldana, a Master of Environment student and social enterprise practitioner. Today, we're talking a little bit about the enablers and the barriers around driving homelessness to zero. And I'm really excited to have on the show Laura Marnie, who is the Chief Impact Officer at Launch Housing, a Melbourne-based community organisation working to end homelessness. She is a values-driven executive with extensive leadership experience across both the public and professional services sectors. She's focused on understanding the impact we are achieving for individuals, communities and society. Because, of course, we can't change what we don't measure. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mariska. I'm happy to be here. I know this has been a long time in the making, it feels, with travel and life just kind of getting in the way as it does, but I'm really excited to be sitting down with you to discuss what I feel will be many things, but in particular generating a movement for social change on ending homelessness and what that looks and feels like, what it takes to deliver services that support the most vulnerable in our community. And as we know, I think having a safe, stable, affordable place to call home and to live is so vital. And with the right supports around people, they really can thrive in in so many ways. So maybe we'll start with getting to know a little bit about you. And this idea of home is something that we talk a lot about on this podcast. And it can be understood in many ways as fundamental to our well-being and our prosperity. What sparked your passion for ensuring everyone has a home? And can you share with us what your own relationship to home is? A home is something that helps people be who they want to be. It's a safe place where people can come back to and leave from every day to engage with the rest of the world and engage with their community. It's something that I was thinking about from a very young age after My parents' marriage breakdown, we had a variety of housing and it wasn't until we kind of landed in a small regional town with just my mum and my brothers and sisters that the idea of home became even more important. It was where we could all be, was where we could feel safe and it was where we had friends and community who were around us. We went to school with people nearby and home is more than just a building but it starts with the building and it's then about the place that you're in and the community that you're a part of. So for me, that's what I mean. Much more than four walls and a roof, I think we can agree. Yeah, absolutely. 
integral to our sense of belonging and identity. And I think when you have experienced different living arrangements or, you know, families kind of evolving and changing in their structures, that can challenge you to change your own relationship with home as as you grow and change on that journey. So I think that's really interesting because it's it's obviously led you to your work at Launch Housing. And um, I want to ask you a little bit about that because obviously this understanding that Australia as a country is really wealthy. And we all agree at a base level that no one should be homeless. But of course, there are a number of factors that make this really difficult to achieve in practice. And as someone working in this space, I'm sure you can speak to that on a number of levels. But failure of policy perhaps is one of the the many reasons And maybe we'll get into that a little bit more as we go along and look at some of the ways that might be remedied. Launch Housing is a Melbourne-based community organisation and providing affordable housing and homelessness support services for disadvantaged Victorians is Launch Housing's remit. It's, It's what you guys do. And working in this space, I think we hope eventually we'll be out of a job, but it seems really... Uh, like a long way off, perhaps. What do you think it will take to end homelessness in our lifetime? It's a really big question. And in some ways, it's got a very simple answer. And then in other ways, there's just so many levels that sit below it. The simple answer is that we need more housing. You know, we don't have enough housing of all types. It is the fundamental starting point for people having a home. However, a deeper answer to that is that we need government support, community support, a really strong belief that we can end homelessness. Because as you said before, you know, to an extent, everyone agrees that no one should be homeless. However, there's a difference to thinking about that philosophically and actually believing that that can happen in practice. Part of that, the starting point is believing that nobody chooses to be homeless. So it's not a life choice that someone sets out to make. Things have happened in their past, in their recent past. Sometimes it can just be one really significant life crisis that can be the difference between someone having a home and not having a home. And the really sad part about it is that it can affect anyone at any age. You know, we we see newborns, we have pregnant mothers, we have young children Teenagers who are experiencing homelessness on their own because their family home's no longer safe. Young adults all the way through to the elderly. It's a really difficult thing to then get people to realise it's not anyone's choice and it's not anyone's fault. And so in order to end homelessness, we need more housing, but we also need to be thinking about what's causing homelessness in the first place and what the types of policy frameworks are that we need to better understand mental health, childhood trauma, family violence. Poverty is a huge one. You know, we can't expect people to be able to enter the private rental market when they're living below the poverty line. Thinking about those elements, as well as then once, if people have already experienced those things, what sort of support do we need to provide with people so that they can live to their potential or do the things that they want to do that we all take for granted while they're living in their home. 
it's a um, multi-layered answer, I think, to a question that on the surface could be quite easy, but on the basis can be difficult. No, I think you're right. Like the idea of homelessness not really discriminating against any particular group or demographic, it being something that can happen to anyone at any time, and yet there being people within our community who are also disproportionately affected because of their circumstances, whether that be gender or race or, you know, a number of other different layers to to that problem. Um, and I think we've seen that particularly with the floods last year in our recent history. Communities that have experienced flooding before, some that haven't were all impacted in a really severe way. Thousands of people lost their homes and we're seeing the effects of that and the repercussions kind of ripple into this year and there being a lot of talk about building resilience within communities to climate as something that we're just going to need to invest much more in and do a lot more planning and capacity building around. So I think there's a lot that will be required to end homelessness in our lifetime. And like any number of other issues that we work on in these sectors, it's really multifaceted and there are lots of interconnected pieces that make it so complex to really break down and start to shift. Yeah, you're you're right there. And it's something we consider a lot. The people that we're working with closely, a lot of the issues that they're facing are from a social perspective and societal, but they're also really significantly affected by the impacts of climate change. You know, if you don't have somewhere to be and you don't have a home, the extreme heat waves, for example, or extreme cold is going to disproportionately affect people who have no other way to protect themselves. And it's the same. We know that people are often living outside in the natural environment. And so anything that affects that natural environment is going to affect them as well. We also know that often the homes that are most likely to be affected in some ways by some of these natural disasters, homes on lower-lying floodplain areas, for example, are often those that are designated, for want of a better term, to people with low incomes. Again, most likely to be affected and the least likely to be able to find a different property that is also still affordable. So while we're looking at the existing situation and the numbers of the people who are experiencing homelessness, we can also see that that's going to increase for such a wide range of reasons, including significant events caused by climate change. Yeah, and that question of affordability, once you do lose a home, if you are in the unfortunate position of of being somewhere that is affected by a natural disaster, there's the question of, well, what do you do next? How do you move into, you know, temporary accommodation and then how long does that actually pan out for? And then the question of claiming insurance and just the the real kind of long, difficult process that follows. And of course, the loss of property and home, like it's it's significant to emotionally, physically go through. And we, of course, have have just had the most recent census data come out 
on homelessness in Australia and on census night, 122,000 people, more than 122,000 people were living without a safe and secure home, which was a 5% increase from 2016. And there's a lot to unpack and talk through around why that's the case. But I think something you touched on before is that the face of homelessness in Australia is really diverse and varied. And often there are lots of, of vulnerable groups that are more at risk of falling into hardship than others. And some groups that are, are just more affected, or at least that's what the data is showing us um, and telling us about the reality that's out there in our community. And some of those groups include young people, as you mentioned, our First Nations community, and women over 55 are amongst the fastest growing cohorts of people experiencing or at risk of homelessness. So I wonder if there are any kind of emerging trends that you're noticing um, in your work with people in Melbourne and Victoria that reflect this and what kinds of approaches do you think might be important, maybe the types of interventions or types of policy that will will help us move out of, of this state that we're currently finding ourselves in? The census figures were eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. From our perspective, we'd already by that point had a year and a half of the pandemic. And one thing that was demonstrated to us is how closely housing is linked to health and healthcare and to your community and your neighbours' healthcare. And in Melbourne, there was a really rapid health response for us to be able to support people, especially people sleeping rough, into emergency accommodation in the hotels and motels around Melbourne. And so for the very first time, we were able to see everybody that was sleeping rough or who didn't have a home during the first year of the pandemic. And it showed everyone across Victoria had been undercounting how many people were experiencing homelessness. And so the numbers that came through in the census did represent what we expected to see. Unfortunately, we also do see those cohorts, those three in particular, young people, First Nations people and women over 55, as well as women and children leaving family violence as being some of the fastest growing cohorts that we are working with. First Nations people are vastly overrepresented in the population of people experiencing homelessness. I think what we need to consider when we're talking about all of the different groups that are most significantly impacted is that we need really different solutions and we need solutions where we're working with the clients and the client cohorts to understand what it is that everybody needs to find a home, the types of homes that people need, where people want to live and what type of support they need to help overcome whatever situation or experiences has led them to that point in their life and to help them restabilize and move on with their lives. From an approach perspective, there's no kind of one specific intervention that'll work for everybody. And that's something that needs to be really, really considered in the policy framework. There are certain people that will live much better in congregate housing, which is kind of like apartment blocks or more community-based living. There are others that just want to be in a standalone home, in their own apartment. And we just have to remember that just because someone's experiencing homelessness doesn't mean they should have no choice 
or no agency in where they live and how they live going forward. And I think that's something that always has to be at the forefront of any of our thinking around this. So just as an example of some of the like specific interventions that we consider or aspects that we're thinking about, if we're working with some people that have had chronic experiences of homelessness, so they've been part of the homelessness system or in touch with it for five, six, seven years, sometimes up to 10 or 12, then the type of housing and support they need is often going to be more intensive, might have a much stronger focus on health, mental health. When you're trying to find somewhere to sleep at night, dealing with physical health problems is not usually your top priority. And also it can be really difficult to access health services. So we need to think about that. On the other hand, if you're a family, a woman and your family leaving family violence, what you need is quite different. You know, you need somewhere that's really safe, somewhere that often, unfortunately, people don't know where you are. So being part of a community-based living arrangement is not going to be right there either. But it does need to be close to schools because we know that it's a big protective factor for children and in preventing the cycle of disadvantage continuing is that they are remain in touch with schools. So they need housing that's located in quite specific areas to help make that transition a little bit easier. Young people similarly, you know, if you're aged 15, 16, you're not going to be wanting to or not even possibly able to live in your own apartment by yourself. Some people might, some won't. And so the youth foyer um, movement that is happening across Australia is a really important way of helping support young people who have experienced homelessness or are experiencing homelessness to be able to settle, work with people and go back to school or education or employment and restart their lives in a way. Yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's pretty clear and there's almost a significant moment to respond in a way that empowers that individual to be able to feel that sense of agency and control over their future, which there's a a great deal of loss of when you're talking about something like long-term homelessness. So there's, yeah, a really important role that the community housing sector plays in terms of identifying the right housing for that person and also providing those services, as you mentioned, around whether it be mental health or pathways to employment or any other number of pillars of, of support that, that can be provided at that time. It's really crucial. So when housing is affordable, we know that it creates opportunity and generational wealth. And we mentioned these cycles of poverty being really, really problematic for individuals and families who are trapped in them. And so affordable housing really is one of those pathways out of that for people living in poverty within Australia. The housing continuum, which is something I came across in my work in this space, is the range of housing types that are available in our community from emergency shelters all the way through to home ownership and the private market. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
why having these different housing options and moving people through that continuum or that spectrum is important or in in some cases how do you approach that with the people that you work with yeah look the housing continuum is an interesting concept and it's also based very much in the australian experience where private home ownership is you know so kind of seen as a an objective or an aim for so many families and as a way it's it's seen as a a tool to support private wealth um, which is quite different to other countries. So in other countries, social housing, for example, is way more dominant than it is here. There is almost like a social contract that people should have housing and that the state or the government should be able to provide that. Whereas that's a very different cultural understanding to what we have in Australia. And so therefore that affects the conversation and it affects the way that people think about the continuum of housing and what it is that we should have. The perspective of the work that we do, there is a spectrum, obviously. And as you just mentioned, so crisis accommodation is a big part of that. And the reason for that is that people will always be experiencing, they'll always experience a crisis that will mean they need to find somewhere to stay quickly. And they might need it for a little while until they can find a more permanent solution. So there will always unfortunately be a need for crisis accommodation but what we aim for is that people's experience of homelessness is rare brief and non-recurring so yes it will happen in certain circumstances but as long as it only happens once and we're able to help people get back onto their feet give them the space and the time that they need to reset and then move into their own home The ideal is that people would move from that situation straight into as long-term a home as we could find them. Um, The current state of the housing market makes that very difficult, both the home ownership market but also the private rental market. And there are significant waiting lists for state-owned housing. So at the moment, that's a, a very tricky transition for people to make. However, it is kind of one of the long-term aspects. But a continuum lends you to think that you know, you move through it on a pathway, whereas actually different housing types suit different people at different times. So social housing um, for some people, that is what people will live in for the rest of their lives, you know, for various reasons. And that's okay. Part of what we say is that there is no judgment around the type of housing that is the best for the person. It's just what is best for the person. Some people will be in the private rental market and that's perfect for them. The structure of our private rental market is quite difficult to make that long-term for people though. Again, other countries, other cultures have a different approach to rentals. So, you know, you could sign a 10-year lease and know that that's going to be your home for the next 10 years and that you understand what your rent will be at that point in time. That's a really different situation to what we have here. Rentals are rarely that long. You know, most people sign a 12-month lease and then it'll go, you might sign another one or you might go rolling month to month. And so it's a lot more insecure as a longer-term housing option than it is in other countries, which is why private home ownership is always seen as the ideal from a cultural perspective because it's yours and it's secure. And that, I guess, goes back to the beginning of the conversation when we're talking about the importance of home. And the importance of home is that sense of safety and security, knowing that you're not going to be kicked out. 
I guess, you know, that you're not going to lose your home, that someone else might make a decision that means your home no longer exists for you. So I guess from that perspective about the different types of housing and who it suits for, we from it's less of a continuum and more of what's right for the individual person and the circumstances that they're in at that point in time. And that'll look different for everyone, as you mentioned. It, it depends on, on the time and the place that you're in in your life and, and what's going on and the factors that are impacting you at, at that time and what's available to you. And also what, what your own aspirations are and what you are looking for in your own life. And I think that that choice is is really important to have. Each of us should be able to to make that those decisions for ourselves without judgment, as you mentioned. Leads me to my next question around the Melbourne Zero campaign, which is just taking Melbourne by storm, I feel. We're observing a very strong push for change across all levels of society right now on this issue of affordable housing. And I think it's part of living up to our reputation in Melbourne as a livable city. Like, what does that actually mean? And does that include everyone that lives here? And, and if not, which is the answer, uh, then how do, we, how do we change that? So the Melbourne Zero campaign is led by Launch Housing and it's calling for an end to street homelessness in Melbourne. But it's also raising the level of ambition and potential for Melbourne to take its place as a leader in this space and really mobilising action around this within the community. What was the approach to building the Melbourne Zero campaign? And can you share any of your key learnings so far? How's it going? (laughs) Sure. So the approach to building the campaign in many ways, um, as I referenced earlier, the pandemic was, um, and our collective response as a community was the real origin of Melbourne Zero. The collective effort that was just played by so many different groups and players. We had um, not-for-profit organisations, local and state government, corporations, businesses, who all demonstrated the power that we already held in tackling homelessness um, within, particularly within the city. And it was really galvanised by a shared priority to get people off the streets and into safety. Also, people were feeling very connected to their neighbours and there was a really strong sense of kindness throughout the community and a much greater sense of collective empathy than you normally see. And so people from every suburb became intrinsically connected to their local community, especially during the lockdowns. And we really cared about our neighbours and it was obvious everywhere. And that extended to people who were sleeping rough. And so ending homelessness and the idea that zero levels of homelessness is actually a plausible goal. The reminder of civic pride, um, you know, who we are as a city and the sense that an individual's health, us as an individual, is connected to another person's health and our broader community's health all basically helped to build the idea for us of the Melbourne Zero approach to ending homelessness. Sitting behind that as well, though, is a really core proven methodology in which is called Functional Zero. 
which is about actually knowing who the people are that are um, sleeping on our streets at any one point in time and being almost a single point of contact focused around the person so we have a name list rather than a list of numbers where everyone is an individual with the services that they need that we can then help support them into a home. And that's a proven methodology internationally and it's starting to be proven out in Melbourne. And that approach has also sat behind this collective understanding because we know that we can do it. We've got a methodology to do it and we've got the community support that we needed. So our approach is that while Asset Lodge Housing, we're the catalyst, we also know we can't end homelessness on our own. And so the vision is that we're kickstarting the focus, but that the goal to end homelessness is actually owned by a collective. I also think you asked about um, some of the key learnings so far. Is that <laughs> we do have some, we've got heaps, in fact. <laughs> our top two, it doesn't matter who we talk to, say from the big end of town organizations to the local fish and chip shop. From partners who are already in the sector, working with um, the same people that we work with, to, you know, brands in entertainment or the arts, doesn't matter. Literally everyone has their own story to share and experience in connection with homelessness. It is a topic that connects us all. The other thing that we've learned is that there is a sense of fatalism and that the sense of fatalism is the biggest enemy of optimism and progress. So if we believe that homelessness is inevitable, and just one of the things that you put up with living in a city, then change is incredibly difficult, if not impossible. But if you create the spark, that zero is the only target and that solutions to homelessness do exist, then many people snap to a really different mindset and start asking, okay, what can we do? What are some of the things we can do at an individual level, at an organizational level, and at a societal level? to end homelessness because it can be done. It's almost like catalyzing that sense of hope and ambition and and reminding ourselves that this is not something that we can't tackle and that we're stronger together as well. When we partner with other organizations and people that inhabit our city and work in these spaces, we collectively can do so much to influence what's happening in our cities. That's right. And there is there is so much that we can do on our um, Melbourne Zero website. We actually have like there's um, more than 20 things that individuals and organisations can do right now to start ending homeless and have, homelessness and having their own impact on change, depending what what works for you and what works for your organisation. So it's worth jumping onto the website and having a look as well. Absolutely. I think everyone always faces into that question of what can I do to make a difference? And this is one way. Knowing that Melbourne is this city full of knowledge and wisdom and potential, we have a very proud history of collective action and community development. In this sector, there's a lot of work that has already been done to alleviate poverty and inequality and homelessness in our city. What is your vision for a more equitable and sustainable climate future? And how might we work better together across sectors to address a problem like street homelessness? 
My vision for a more equitable and sustainable climate future is that it applies to everybody. It's understanding we know what some of the greatest impacts are at a societal level and an individual level. And so remembering that in our solutions and thinking about, you know, if we're building new housing, community housing, social housing, that climate protective factors need to be part of it. You know, renewable energy, proper insulation, as far as possible passive buildings, because not only are they a much better outcome for the climate, they're also a much better outcome for the people living in them. And they also tend to reduce people's cost of living. So they're a win-win really all around um, if we're looking at it from a housing perspective in particular. And I think, as I said before, like we have to work together across sectors and across silos to approach and end homelessness. The health sector and the community services sector, homelessness sector in the stands, we're all inextricably linked and we already are really working together. And so it's about making sure that the policy frameworks and the system see as one. You know, we're one system. You can't separate someone's um, experience of homelessness from their health or from the experiences that they've had previously or if you're a child from their education experience. So we need to be thinking about integrated and more holistic solutions to end homelessness. And we also need to be thinking as a community about what we can do. The financial structures that make personal home ownership and investment properties a hallmark of wealth need to be considered in order for us to think about affordable housing on a broader scale. You know, more and more people are being pushed out of home ownership, but also the private rental market, people that traditionally would always be able to rent. And so that's going to have flow on impacts. And that's because of the economic structures that we have in place. So we need to be thinking together um, as an entire society about what it takes to end homelessness and believe that we can and take the individual actions that we all can, as well as making sure that our policy and social frameworks and social contracts support that end goal of ending homelessness. And caring for each other and for our community, like you said, that empathy needs to be front of mind for our fellow community members who are just as much a part of this city and deserve every opportunity as we all do. I agree. It's that that idea of um, reducing stigma and seeing everybody as an individual and understanding that nobody chooses homelessness. That caring, that reaching out and that sense of community that we all had during the pandemic and during the lockdown, so that continues. That's not something we lose. There was a lot to learn from. But there was also some things to be proud of. And that's one of the things that as a community we should be proud of. It's how we came together and how we looked after each other and thought about the safety, security and health of all the people in our community and that that should continue going forward. We can absolutely create a brighter future for everyone in this city when we work together and we put our minds to it. It is possible, but as you said, it starts with the provision of safe and stable and affordable housing. So 
Thank you, Laura, so much for your time. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you, Marishka.